This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And of course, this week we continue our fascinating conversation with renowned attorney, a man who has argued in front of the Supreme Court on behalf of many Jewish and other famous causes many times, Nat Nathan Lewin. If you haven't yet had the chance to listen to part one from last week, I would suggest that you go back and do so. We were in the middle of a riveting discussion about some of the more famous cases that Nat has argued in front of the Supreme Court, including many landmark precedent-setting cases involving the church-state relationship. And it is that relationship which we left off analyzing last week. When it comes to these church-state type cases, you know, I know that's kind of a general fault line for many people. If, if there was like an overarching argument or way of describing a perspective on what the separation church-state or the establishment clause means that obviously from your perspective allows for these various modes of expression. How do you express that to people uh, in a way that explains that these are still within their constitutional rights? Well, the First Amendment, people don't recognize that the first 16 words of the First Amendment, the first 16 words of the Bill of Rights are, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The first 16 words of the Bill of Rights don't relate to speech, they don't relate to press, they don't relate to assembly, they relate to religion. And they have two provisions. One, no establishment. Congress cannot establish a religion, and nor can any other government, as the Supreme Court has defined it. No city government, no state government, no government agency can't, quote, establish a religion. And B, they may not restrict the free exercise of religion. So if you ask me, my philosophy about the religion clauses of the First Amendment is that we need a strong free exercise clause and a weak establishment clause. In other words, the establishment clause, I agree with the late Justice Scalia that the establishment clause was not designed to set up a wall of separation between church and state people love to describe it and many Jewish organizations describe it as a wall of separation. Wall of separation is never mentioned in the Constitution. It is not a constitutional proposition. It's simply a metaphor that was used at one time and that those who see something wrong whenever there is any form of assistance from the state that may help religion, they say it violates the wall of separation. But I think that the Establishment Clause does not require this very strict application that Jewish organizations were pushing on the Supreme Court for many years, very successfully. I mean, in the 60s and 70s, maybe even into the early 80s, the Supreme Court was being urged by the American Jewish Congress to set up this wall of separation. I think that was wrong. For that matter, I'm the only one who wrote a brief for Jewish organizations that supported the financing of secular teachers in religious schools. 
famous case versus Kurtzman, in which the Supreme Court, with an opinion by then Chief Justice Warren Berger, said that it was unconstitutional to provide a system under which teachers of chemistry, of French, of secular subjects at religious schools were being paid salaries by the state. That is now a leading religion case decided by the Supreme Court, although a majority of the Supreme Court has already said that they disapprove of the test, the constitutional test, that was set down in Lemon versus Kurtzman. I believe that Lemon versus Kurtzman should be overruled finally, and that the courts should recognize that it is permissible under the Establishment Clause to pay a math teacher in a yeshiva because the state expects students who go to a yeshiva or to go to a Catholic school to get an education in math, in biology, in chemistry, in some foreign language. Why should those students and the parents of those students be forced to pay out of their own money for French teachers or chemistry teachers or math teachers when they are going to that school in order to get a religious education. That's true. But they're also being educated in all these secular subjects like the kids who go to the public schools and the non-religious schools. Why shouldn't the teachers of those subjects be paid by the state? These kids are getting an education. I got an education when I went to Talmudical Academy from high school teachers in math and science who came to Talmudical Academy late in the afternoon or early evening after they finished teaching at very good secular high schools, the Bronx High School of Science, Stuyvesant, other schools like that. They were terrific teachers. If I went to the Bronx High School of Science over Stuyvesant, tax money would pay for those teachers. Sure. When I was Miracle Academy, my parents had to pay for those teachers, essentially. That's I'm well fair. aware. <laughs> As a current day school parent, I am well aware. Anyway, I wrote a brief for the Orthodox Jewish community in Lemon versus Kurtzman saying that that was, should be held constitutional. We lost that. Warren Berger wrote an opinion saying it was unconstitutional. I think by the time Warren Berger left the Supreme Court, he was sorry that he had written that opinion. He did hmm. not like to say it or quote it, but it's on the books and it can be on the books. Is there any hope for that being overturned? The problem really is that there is a practical difficulty in getting it overturned, which is that any legislature like the legislature of the state of Utah, the legislature of the state of Rhode Island, which has a lot of Catholics, if they would want to pass a law that would say we all the chemistry teachers out of public funds, as soon as that law was introduced, the ACLU and the organizations for separation of churches would immediately stand up and say that law is clearly unconstitutional so you don't get to the position where a court makes a decision on that issue because it's aborted right at the very beginning. But the decision should be overruled. I mean, what I am people about is, look, let's set up some case in which a school board or somebody else says, we're going to pay chemistry teachers in yeshivas and in Catholic schools. And then let's take that case up to the current Supreme Court of the United States with the current membership 
including the latest appointment of Justice Gorsuch, I think there's a possibility that a majority of the Supreme Court would say we will overrule Lemon versus Gorsuch. What are some of the other very memorable landmark cases of, of your career, the ones that really stand out for you, um, that perhaps you're most proud of or you found well, of most? Course. I mean, I, I'm known wherever I go to any Chabad house for the fact that I did the Rebbe's case, the Chabad Lubavitcher Rebbe's case over the ownership of the library. Library, previous Rebbe. That was a litigation that actually took place in a federal district court. We had witnesses who testified and a federal judge ruled that that library belonged to the Lubavitch community. As opposed to private family members? As opposed to family members. A, a nephew of the Rebbe was taking books from it and wanted to sell them in order right. to himself and we prevented that and I actually litigated that so that's a case that I'm associated with but I have had the good fortune over the years of representing various clients in non-Jewishes I represented Richard Nixon although my Jack Miller got me to leave <laughs> to leave Nixon right administration on the statement you don't want to work for Richard Nixon when Nixon ran into trouble and ended up resigning the presidency, who did he pick to be his personal <laughs> lawyer? Jack Miller. Well, maybe that was his whole plan all along. <laughs> Jack Miller became his lawyer. And then the issue that we had and that I was involved with is, was it constitutional for Congress to say that they, the federal government, was going to take over Nixon's library, essentially, his personal papers and his tapes, and they were seized under a law, an act that dealt with Nixon's papers alone. Mm. They were seized by the United States, and Nixon, with us representing him, brought a lawsuit that that was unconstitutional. Miller and I, I had part of the oral argument in the Supreme Court. I wrote the brief in the Supreme Court for Richard Nixon attacking the constitutionality of the statute that took his papers and tapes. I represented you thought John those were private? Pardon? You thought those would be private? Should be I, private? No, I thought that taking them essentially was what the Constitution prohibits. It was a bill of attainder. Essentially, Congress had made a law for that individual alone. Only Richard Nixon, of all the presidents of history, had his papers taken by the U.S. government. What and normally happens to them? Ordinarily, the president owns his papers, and he puts them in a presidential library. Okay. And that's what every other president has done, has created a presidential library of his papers. Nixon's papers, for a period of time, were being held and only released over a period of time and they were being held by the federal government. My view was, and I believe that that was correct, that that was unconstitutional to do it. But in the atmosphere post-Nixon's resignation, he couldn't win any case right. in any court, a little bit like Trump today. Right. I mean, he couldn't win a case in any court, and we lost that case in the Supreme Court. But Jack Miller and I presented the oral argument, and I wrote the full brief in that case, in the Nixon Papers case. Um, I represented John Lennon, famous Beatle, in the case where I managed to 
keep him from being deported from the United States. The United States and the Nixon administration wanted to send him off to England because he had pleaded guilty to the possession of marijuana in England. And on that basis, they tried to claim that he was deportable. I litigated that in the Court of Appeals in New York and won. So John Lennon was not deported. I represented Jody Foster in the trial of Hinckley, John Hinckley, who had this obsession with Jody Foster and shot Ronald Reagan in order to show how terrific he was and get Jody to like him. Jody did not want to testify before a jury and with all the news around. And I worked out a solution under which the parties agreed that she would testify in a private courtroom. We would take a film of her testimony with all the lawyers and the judge in the courtroom, but no jury, no public. And that film would be shown to the jury at the trial. So I represented Jody Foster and came up with that idea and persuaded the parties and the court that that was the way to go so that Jody did not have to justify in public. Did you get some free movie tickets out of that? Well, they got movie tickets, but uh, I mean, Jody came to Washington and then there were rumors that I was taking out Jody Foster. Oh, I mean, that's likely. But in any event, I'm the only lawyer who represented a incumbent attorney general who was the target of a criminal investigation. Edwin Meese, who was the attorney general in the Reagan administration, was alleged to have participated in a criminal conspiracy involving a company called WedTech because some guy from California who was trying to impress Meese and did not let go of his friendship with Edwin Meese had gotten him to say things or do things that made him target of an investigation by an independent counsel. And I represented Edwin Meese and we got the independent counsel to drop the case. I mean, to say that there was not a basis for indicting Edwin Meese. So that, you know, those kinds of things in addition to the Jewish cases, gave me a great opportunity to try various aspects of the legal process. And more recently, I mean, in terms of Jewish case, of course, we had the Jerusalem passport case. Congress ah, passed a law. Zivotofsky. Zivotofsky, right, that Congress passed a law that said that any American citizen born in Jerusalem had the right to have his passport say Israel because Congress recognized Jerusalem as being in Israel. The Supreme Court, majority of the Supreme Court said that whether Jerusalem is in Israel or to recognize whether Jerusalem is in Israel is exclusively a presidential prerogative. Only the President of the United States can do that. And since no president had recognized Jerusalem as being in Israel, and Obama certainly had not done it, therefore the Congress could not constitutionally order the passport office to designate a person born in Jerusalem being born in Israel. Even Western Jerusalem? Any part of Jerusalem. All of Jerusalem is not in Israel under American policy today. No part of Jerusalem is in Israel. The only person who can do anything about that is the President of the United States. So if Donald Trump were to sign a piece of paper today that says, I hereby recognize that Jerusalem is in Israel, 
And everybody born in Jerusalem, you wouldn't need a congressional statute. You're born in Jerusalem, you would be born in Tel Aviv or born in Haifa, that your passport would say that you were born in Israel. And yet, yet there is congressional statute that the embassy belongs in Jerusalem, right? Totally different question. People don't understand that the question of whether the embassy is placed in Jerusalem, whether Jerusalem is recognized as the capital of Israel, is a totally different question from whether Jerusalem is in Israel. But if it's the capital, certainly it's, right? Well, no, not necessarily. <laughs> Until an American president says Jerusalem is in Israel, it would make no sense to move an embassy to a city that is even not in Israel. The U.S. Embassy to Israel is in Amman, is in Damascus? No, because those cities are not in Israel. Would it be in Jerusalem? Jerusalem is not in Israel, according to American policy, because no president has signed a paper that says Jerusalem is in Israel. Theoretically, with this situation we have now with these repeating six-month freezes pushing off the congressional, the, the implementation of this congressional statute, you could theoretically have a case, it sounds like, in which if a president would say, okay, I'm not going to continue that, move the embassy, you could move the embassy to Jerusalem, but not have Jerusalem as being part of Israel, technically. Is, is that correct? Technically, that would be right. If the president said... Now, we will move the embassy to Jerusalem. You would be moving it to a city that is not in Israel. You're making the embassy, the U.S. embassy to Israel being in a city that, that is not in Israel. Sounds preposterous, but I guess <laughs> anything is possible. Uh, I guess two questions. First of all, what would you consider your most consequential case, the case that you think has been the most precedent-setting or the most uh, influential and secondly, what case do you most regret or you know, wish you could have back, in a sense? Wish it had gone a different direction? Well, in terms of a precedential case, I guess the Supreme Court litigation over the menorah in front of Pittsburgh City Hall has had a very substantial precedential effect with regard to the whole question of private expression of religion in a public place. That case decided and laid the groundwork for all future situations in which private parties wanted to express themselves about religion in a public forum. Because until then, the general question was that if you were on an important public place, you couldn't speak about religion because it would look like the government is speaking about religion. So that if you're simply talking about precedent, I think that may have been the most effective precedent in terms of any case that I have litigated. Now, in terms of cases that one would want to take back or that had unfortunate results, there are two. I mean, after all these years of litigating in the American courts, I've become very cynical about the American court system. I've seen really? too many great injustices in terms of the American court system. The greatest injustice, of course, is the Roboshkin case in which a man who did nothing worse than every other meatpacker in the United States, I mean, not Jewish, Swift and Company, 
Tyson's. I don't know, all the other main meat packers had, had all had undocumented aliens working for them. And so did Rubashka. And the others get a slap on the wrist and somebody maybe gets a couple of months in jail. And with Rubashkin, they went after him with a vengeance and made a appeared before a really very hostile judge who was ready to increase the sentence that the government requested. The government requested a 25-year jail sentence. She increased it to 27. The offense was an offense in which the bank didn't really suffer no loss. Right. Boshkin did not defraud the bank. He took more cash within a line of credit than he might have under the literal agreement that he made with the bank, he would have been entitled to take, but he paid interest for all the additional cash he paid. So the bank really benefited. But the prosecutors made it, made it appear to be a major fraud. Uh, the judge was totally hostile, and he is sitting in jail with a 27, unbelievable 27-year sentence. I just recently had another decision in a case that I put substantial effort into, which was the case in which the FBI arranged a sting in order to catch rabbis who might be willing to condone violence in order to get a husband who refused to give a get to an Aguna. That's the Epstein and... The Epstein case. Yeah. I represented a man by the name of Benjamin Stimler, who's a very decent, straightforward, very good, otherwise totally law-abiding citizen who agreed to go out on this trip in order to be a witness to a get, and he ended up with a 39-month jail sentence because the FBI decided that they're going to conduct a sting to see whether there are rabbis who are ready to do this. Now, you know, stings make sense when you have people engaged in an illegal transaction where both parties to the illegal transaction will not disclose it because the seller of drugs and the buyer of drugs are both engaged in illegal conduct. So you do a sting to find out who is buying, who is selling. You put law enforcement agents out there in order to get the culpable people. But when you're talking about assault, which is basically what you're complaining about with regard to a, a man who does not give a get and rabbis or others are willing to go and beat him up so that he would give a get, the ordinary law enforcement procedure should work, which is that if you're assaulted, you go to the prosecutor, you complain about it, and the prosecutor brings an assault prosecution. You have to really go out to find out whether some guy out in the street is ready to commit an assault by creating a non-existent situation so that you can entrap him into saying, yeah, I'll assault somebody on the street who looks like he's dangerous. You don't do that. You wait until there's an assault. But with regard to rabbis and agunot, FBI decided that it was worth an enormous expenditure of money and lying to Jewish established groups in order to see whether there's some rabbi, whether it's Rabbi Epstein or Rabbi Walmart or any of the other rabbis who were caught up in this thing, whether they would be willing, willing to go and do some violence to a man who would not give a get. I think that's outrageous. Uh, and yet there was a trial. These people were sitting in jail. Again, as I say, I've seen 
many injustices in the legal system. Has that cynicism translated at all into you perhaps being partial towards things like innocence projects and you know wrongful convictions and that whole movement, which seems to be taking uh, generating a lot of momentum in today's day and age? Yeah, and I think it's very important that there be projects like that. But I'm I'm concerned, at least with regard to too many Jewish situations, I have not seen vindication of people who should be vindicated or should not have been criminally prosecuted. And in today's society, I mean, prosecuting an Orthodox Jew is an everyday occurrence. Uh, Unfortunately, there are people who are Orthodox Jews who go close to the line and maybe do things they shouldn't do. But I also think there is too much in the way of willingness to go after people who are Jewish and very obviously Jewish, Orthodox Jews, beards, black hats, uh, they're more high-profile targets than people who just look like an ordinary average American. Starting to wrap up, what do you see, given all of this climate and, and your history litigating, what do you see as sort of the future of religious liberty in this country? You know, obviously we live in, a, in an era of rapidly shifting, evolving, some would say devolving, depending on your perspective, social mores. How do you see this playing out and, and impacting religious groups, religious nonprofits? Are you, are you optimistic? <laughs> I know I can't say I'm optimistic, nor can I say I'm optimistic in view of the fact that there is now this merger between anti-Semitism directed specifically at Jews and anti-Israel feeling, which is also a form of anti-Semitism. I mean, the president of France and uh, Senator Schumer just said it just yesterday and the day before, that there is this identity between criticizing or attacking Israel and really being an old-fashioned anti-Semite. It's very hard to draw that line and distinguish between the two things, between being an anti-Semite and being anti-Israel. Anti-Israel is really a cover today for anti-Semitism. And unfortunately, a lot of people are sort of bamboozled by the notion that, oh, you know, Jews can be anti-Israel, so therefore non-Jews can right. be anti Israel, and they're not anti-Semitic, they're just anti-Israeli policies. I think Israel, you know, it's well, I think, well documented that there is a double standard, uh, that Israel is criticized for things that other countries are not criticized for, that so much of the world wants Israel either not to exist or not to be as influential and as powerful as it is, and consequently, these are really anti-Semitic feelings, but they are cloaked in, no, just anti-Israel. But in this country, in terms of the uh, changing social dynamics, do you see there being any change, or do you see sort of a trend towards maybe the persecution of religious values or religious perspectives? Yes, I do see a trend towards harming, criticizing, prosecuting, persecuting, Jews more so than others. So I think it is a part of a trend, a negative trend with regard to Jews in the United States. Just in wrapping up, where are things now for you? I I know that you're still hard at work, um, but I also know that 
It seems you spend a good amount of time in Israel. Um, it seems like your daughter perhaps is involved in your firm currently, which it sounds like is just a family firm at this point. Where are things right now for you and, and kind of what's the next chapter? Well, the, um, it's true that we have a home in Jerusalem. We love spending time there. We just spent a month and a half in Jerusalem from before Yom Yerushalayim until just last week. Wow. We had made this plan that we were going to go to Israel for Yom Yerushalayim and for Shavuot, which we love to be in, it, in Jerusalem and our home in Jerusalem for. And we scheduled a trip that we were going to make to Israel. And then it turned out that we scheduled this trip and actually had to make the trip that a fellow by the name of Donald Trump decided he was going to come to Jerusalem on the same day that we had planned to come. Oh, goodness. He never invited me to go on his plane <laughs> or anything like that, but he showed up in Jerusalem on the very same day that we came. We came later. So by the time we arrived, the streets in Jerusalem were closed. We couldn't get to our house. Oh, no. So a lot, of, a lot of difficulties. So we love being in Jerusalem. I try to continue with a law practice uh, during this period of time that we spend more time in Jerusalem. Uh, my daughter is very much interested and very much involved in the kinds of things that I've been involved with, representing Jewish interests, Israeli interests. We've given some substantial thought to the possibility of trying to form a pro bono entity that would engage in this as a regular matter. I mean, I get calls and I get emails left and right from people that want, need pro bono help on Jewish issues, on Israel issues. There's a limit to what we can do. Sure. Uh, and uh, my daughter is seriously trying to plan out some way in which, not as a family law firm, but maybe as some other entity, mm -hmm. we could be doing this sort of thing. And she would be doing it and um, encouraging other lawyers to get involved in defending in courts Jewish rights and defending Israel in various legal contexts. And it's just currently the, the firm that you're a part of is you and your daughter? Just my daughter and myself, just the two of us. That's it. And do you have other children that are not involved in the, in the firm? Yes. Uh, we have uh, another daughter who is followed in her mother's footsteps. Her mother, my wife, was the photographer for the Washington Jewish Week. Huh. And various, you know, has always been very involved as a photographer. And our younger daughter taught photography at Corcoran School before it was absorbed by G.W. George Washington and is still uh, doing photography and exhibiting her photographs at various locations. Wonderful. And I'm sure you stay deeply engaged, it sounds like, in your own Jewish learning and other pursuits of that nature. Well, I teach two days a week. I am undertaken to teach Dafyomi two days a week at my synagogue, which is very good personal discipline as well as the opportunity to teach. I do give a class in my shul after our Hashkama minyan, so all these things keep one mentally alert, really, and interested. 
Sure. Sounds like you have plenty of subjects to keep you mentally alert. And it seems like the Jewish people, uh, as much as you've already done, that there's plenty more for the Jewish people to benefit from your expertise and your dedication. I want to thank you so, so much for joining us. It's been a fascinating tour through really decades of legal and historical periods. And uh, I've learned so much. Thank you very, very much, Nat Lewin. Well, thank you, and it's a great project that you're, you've undertaken. I think it's, uh, may you have much hatzlach, a lot of Amen. success. And thank you so much. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at jewsyoushouldknow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.